Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. So, hello, my name is Roland Clark. Um, I'm here on the New Books Network, and it's my pleasure to be speaking to Professor Dennis Delatant today, who's the author of In Search of Romania, a book recently published with Hearst and Company, as well as Romania 1916 to 1941, a political history, which will be out with Routledge in August. Dennis taught Romanian studies at the UCL School of Slavonic and East European Studies between 1969 and 2011, at the University of Amsterdam between 2003 and 2010. He was the Jan Ratzio Professor of Romanian Studies at Georgetown University from 2011 until 2020, um, and he's just been appointed a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center um, next year. He was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire in 1995 and was awarded the Order of Merit with the rank of Commander for Services to Romanian Democracy in the year 2000 by President Emil Constantinescu. Um, that's not the, the least of his, um, that's not the end of his awards. In 2016, he was awarded the Order of the Star of Romania Officer Rank by President Klaus Johannes. And as you might expect from someone so highly decorated, Dennis is the author of numerous works on the history of Romania, including Ceausescu and the Securitate, Romania under Communist Rule, Communist Terror in Romania, and Ion Antonescu, Hitler's Forgotten Ally. And I mention all this because today we're talking about a bio, um, an autobiography or a memoir. Um, so Dennis, this is a memoir, and I'm sure that there's a lot that could have gone into this book that didn't. Um, we don't get many details about your personal life um, in in search of Romania. There's no juicy anecdotes about errant colleagues you've worked with in the past. Um, and you don't actually tell us much about your life in the UK at all. What made you want to write a memoir that was mostly about Romanian politics and society? Um, I would uh, emphasize that it is a memoir, as you've pointed out, Roland, and it's not an autobiography. I didn't set out to write an autobiography because I my, I wanted to keep my focus very much on Romania and on the fact that it had shaped and has shaped my professional life. Um, there is indeed a, um, a great deal of uh, detail that I could put in to an autobiography about my early life and my career at CIS, and I'm, I'm leaving that for um, hopefully uh, another volume which will deal more with my background. Um, I just say briefly that um, I came to uh, East Central Europe in general really out of curiosity. Uh, I was very influenced by my contact with George Rude, who had taught at uh, Holloway Comprehensive School. I, I was brought. I was born in Norfolk, but at a very early age, my parents brought me to London, and I. I suppose you would call. Um, me a child of working class background. I, I studied at the secondary level at Holloway Comprehensive School and uh, one of our teachers uh, of history in 1958-59 was George Rude, who was a very 
influential character on me simply because he talked about uh, the value of liberty, Wilkes and liberty, his research um, had led him to study the crowd in the French Revolution in the uh, late 1940s, and he indeed uh, spent a year in Paris. Uh, I think it was in 1949. But he, um, what I didn't realise at the time, 58, 59, was that he was a paid-up member of the uh, British Communist Party. Not that that would have influenced me in any way, because his main interest was looking at uh, history from below, as he called it. And uh, this is evidenced in his publication. Uh, what I what I, and I think many of my colleagues in the uh, history classes we had at Holloway School admired in Ruday was his um, balanced, his equitable approach to history. Of course, he had his political views, um, we realised, but he didn't allow them to influence his teaching. And one of the uh, one of the factors which, again, um, I would say endeared him as a teacher to his students was the fact that he taught about slavery. We're talking uh, we're talking here about 1958, 59, and I, I've read a, some rather strange uh, comments in the British press recently about uh, the legacy of slavery being unknown and overlooked and in um, teaching. Well, I can tell you that from my own experience, Rude uh, spent several sessions talking about William Wilberforce, about the numbers of uh, slaves who were transported to the New World. And of course, this was a great eye-opener for us. And as I've just said, it was yet a factor that um, made us respect very much uh, Rude's contribution to our own education. Regarding um, my personal life and juicy anecdotes, indeed I have very many, but I'd, have, I'd need to be very careful in uh, this day and age of repeating some of them. I'm afraid the comments were uh, some of the comments of my colleagues back in the late 60s when I was appointed in early 70s uh, would be libelous. So some of the comments that I would make about them, <laughs> I dare not repeat them at the moment. I, I probably need to take legal advice before I put um, some of my reminiscences in this regard on paper. Or at least um, before a posthumous ex expose yeah, comes out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's not it's not everyone that had a chance to be taught by someone like Rude in high school. So um, just for... Uh, our listeners who don't know, George Ruday is one of the foundational historians of the 1950s and 60s in um, British historiography. He he launched this um, particularly Marxist and very communist-influenced way of reading history, looking at the ordinary people um, and his study of crowds in the French Revolution and of 18th century France in general was just groundbreaking. Um, so, Dennis, you were first introduced to the idea of state socialism by Rude in 58. Uh, and then in 1964, you started learning Romanian and you eventually got to Romania for the first time in July 1965. What sort of preconceptions did you have about the country before you went there for the first time? What sort of place did you expect to find? Um, it was curiosity um, that drove me to uh, choose Romania uh, for curiosity in the sense that, first of all, I was very interested in linguistics or the linguistics of linguistic history of the Latin languages, the neo-Latin languages of which Romania, of course, is one. But also I was uh, curious to know how state socialism would impact uh, what was basically a, a Latin people. How did the Romanians cope with the imposition of a very rigid doctrinal ideology. And this led me to want to see for myself uh, how that interaction took place. Again, uh, in 1964, there was hardly any literature available that I could find at any rate, even in London, on uh, contemporary life in Romania. I mean, on certainly there were some books about Romanian history, uh, which were published in the interwar period. Um, 
And uh, I was also intrigued by the fact that several of those who'd written about, even professional historians who'd written about Southeastern Europe in, the gen in general, took uh, a somewhat flippant attitude. I remember going to a bookshop on Charing Cross Road, uh, secondhand bookstores. It was full of Charing Cross Road in London, where central London was full of secondhand bookstores, just trying to look for um, <clears throat> books on Southeastern Europe in general and on Romania in particular. And I remember one published, I can't remember the author, but it was entitled Travels in Romania, and then the subtitle was Best Forgotten. I think that was uh, summed up, um, if you like, a popular attitude that there was toward Southeastern Europe and uh, including Romania, of course, and was, again, an extra reason for me to find out a little more uh, about the country and in particular how it influenced the ordinary the ordinary person. Again, the ordinary person, my view, had been partially shaped by Rude there and trying to see what did communism mean for uh, the ordinary inverted citizen, in inverted comma, citizen in Romania. In the book, you have some very entertaining stories, um, quite funny stories about interactions with diplomats, bureaucrats and border guards, especially during the 1970s and 80s. Um, quite a lot of them are quite funny and border on the absurd. What do you think it was about Romanian state socialism that made it so entertaining? Um, I, th I think it was uh, this um, entertaining, if you like, this uh, curious um, or idiosyncratic nature of communism in Romania. It was one that wasn't uh, unique to Romania. Um, I would... Uh, point to Bulgaria where there were similar, I have a limited experience of Bulgaria, but I have been there and there were similar instances where, in fact, um, I remember once driving into Bulgaria and uh, foreigners, that is Westerners, were supposed to get their petrol from or gas from particular gas stations, from pumps that were reserved for foreigners, but you couldn't pay in cash, you had to have these tokens and you could only get the tokens at the border when you crossed. The problem was that when I crossed into Bulgaria and other Westerners crossed, there were no tokens available. So you ended up going to the petrol, the gas pump, um, explaining to the attendant that you couldn't pay in the tokens uh, for the gas. And thankfully, several of the um, pump attendants in Bulgaria were uh, laughed and were understanding and allowed us to pay in uh, local Bulgarian leva, the Bulgarian currency. Well, in, in Romania, I think there was a similar, there was very much a similar attitude. People sought to balance their public and private personae and they had the, they introduced these defence mechanisms and humour was one of them. Uh, uh, we pretend to work and the state pretends to pay us. This was a phrase that I heard in Poland, I heard it in Bulgaria, I heard it in Romania, and doubtless uh, it was uttered very frequently in the Soviet Union. Um, so I think the attempt to bypass or at least um, deal with, cope with rigid rules was one of the mechanisms that um, citizens in the state socialist countries uh, employed in order to leave, lead their lives. The other factor, I think, which is very important to bear in mind when we're looking at East Central Europe as a whole is the public attitude to law. I mean, law uh, in the history of these countries is, has generally been used to oppress the people. Uh, and therefore, there's a suspicion of law that people have and the rigid system of law, of course, introduced by state socialism, merely um, exacerbated uh, this suspicion that citizens had of the law in Romania. I mean, there are numerous instances uh, we can point to of the law being avoided in Romania in the interwar period. Again, corruption involves, of course, uh, in most cases, the perversion of law. So... Um, I didn't find this um, particularly uh, surprising, given my limited knowledge of Romanian history in the interwar period when I went to Romania 
1965, although, as I point out in the memoir, it's extremely difficult in the summer of 65 for me to meet uh, uh, Romanians of my own age. And I think that that, that, that comment about the humour actually comes from Romanians. It's not uh, unlike some books... Um, I'm um, thinking of things like, um, no, better not name names, um, <laughs> where Westerners are laughing at East Europeans. This is actually um, East Europeans laughing at their own uh, political and um, legal system. And that's the sort of humour that comes out in this memoir as well. Um, one of the highlights of the book, uh, and I suspect of your life, is your marriage to Andrea, so which suggests that you did eventually manage to meet someone your own age. Um, can you tell us a bit about how being married to Andrea has shaped your scholarship over the years? This uh, marriage to Andrea and uh, getting to know, of course, her, her friends and family enabled me to um, discover really the degree to which uh, communism and the imposition of communism intruded in uh, the lives of citizens of the state and and the iniquitous way, um, the iniquitous imprint it left on persons. I think it's the um, effect that state socialism had uh, in terms of the individual's fate of, uh, and the the legality of uh, the measures that were introduced. I mean, we tend to forget that the Securitate, the um, state security police in Romania, in its founding charter, um, there is a clause which specifically says that the Securitate is there to defend the conquests of the Romanian people and the Romanian people's republic. So effectively, in its founding charter in August 1948, it is certifying itself as a police state. Romania is a police state uh, in August 1948 and continues to be a police state really right up until the overthrow of Ceausescu. We still don't have uh, complete access, as you yourself, Roland, has often pointed out, to the archives of the Securitate. But my contact so with with Andrea enabled me to meet her parents. Um, her father-in-law was apolitical. He'd been non-political in the interwar period. He did study in Germany, in Nazi Germany, and uh, told me a lot about his years as a student there. But he was, in fact, quite left-wing. Um, however, he nevertheless, he was arrested in 1950, simply because he was the son of what the Romanians call a demnitar, that is someone who'd held public office in the interwar period. And he spent 18 months in the labour camp. He was never tried. Um, and um, on his uh, <clears throat> when he was released, he was given no documentation. He was just uh, allowed to leave without warning after 18 months and uh, walked several kilometres to a railway station. Um, and there, there was a very moving encounter which he related to me of him turning up with his uh, with his beard or unshaven, looking very haggard in the clothes in which he'd entered the labour camp 18 months before. And he had no money. And a complete stranger came up to him and offered him and gave him his ticket and said, I know where you've come from. You need this ticket more than I do. And for me, that summed up the um, generosity of spirit uh, of many Romanians whom I came to meet, that despite their own personal suffering, their own personal difficulties, uh, they, they preserved their humanity. And this allowed them to overcome the uh, sufferings that they had uh, endured. My my father-in-law was never a member of the Communist Party, and yet because of his training in Germany, he was a very prized engineer, and he was involved in the construction of the uh, of the um, railway bridge and road bridges over the uh, over the Danube. Uh, and I learnt a lot from him and from other members of the family who had suffered as a result of the repressive. Um, actions of the Communist Party. 
um, he introduced me to fellow political prisoners. And of course, there was very little material in English about the camps in Romania, labor camps or the prisons. And so even then, from the 70s, um, I began talking to these people, uh, such people with this background. Uh, and it was through them that I met some of the people whom we would call dissidents today, people like Anna Blandiana, um, Mircea Dinescu, uh, and several other people. Andre Plescher, of course, I'm talking about with Andre post-1985 and so on. But it was really that contact with um, dissidents in the broadest sense that led me to develop my interest in the Securitate itself. Uh, and, of course, the dissidents come up very strongly in the chapter called Countdown to Revolution um, because the book goes through the state socialist period uh, and then you get to the dissidents such as Mircea Dinescu, Silvio Brucan, Mircea Raciano and others, as well as campaigns like Operation Villages Remains. Uh, with all this going on, how long before the 22nd of December 1989 did you realise that Ceausescu's regime was about to collapse? Were there signs that it was doomed? Uh, no, I would say, uh, as you point out um, in your note to me before our interview, historians are not good at, are notoriously bad at predicting the future. And uh, I count myself amongst them. I, I didn't predict the fall of Ceausescu. I did, I did believe, given the events in the rest of the communist bloc, that, he would, that his end would come, but not at the point when it did come. So I thought he would hang on, given the degree of, uh, we might say, acquiescence on the part of Romanians towards the regime, and also given the effectiveness of the Securitate. Uh, we often uh, overlook the fact that the um, efficiency of a security police depends very much on uh, cooperation from the population. Uh, and this is borne out by the Gestapo. If we discuss, if we look at the records of the Gestapo, the records of, uh, as far as we can, of the KGB, um, records of the Stasi, records of the Securitate, um, the population, to a certain degree, did their work for them. Uh, and so uh, the use of informers was widespread uh, throughout the communist bloc. Uh, in Romania, it was notorious, I would say, uh, and therefore, um, the dissidents were extremely brave people uh, raising their head about the parapet um, and really risking um, risking a great deal uh, in their activities to draw attention to the abuses of the regime. Let me just give you a, a, an example. I, I became very friendly with Doina Cornia, although I did not meet her personally until after the revolution, but I, I did try to see her in 1988 when I was in Cluj, but I was prevented from doing so. Anyway, uh, in uh, January 1990, there was a huge gathering in Alba Iulia, December the 1st, to mark the anniversary of the Union of Transylvania with Romania. With Romania, so December the first, nineteen ninety, and when Doina Cornia stepped up on the stage to address the crowd, she was booed, she was whistled by a large section of the crowd, and for me, that emphasised the difficulties that um, dissidents had in Romania. They were fighting not just the regime, but fighting a perverted mentality, uh, and I. That was one again, another reason why I uh, tried to help as best I could um, dissidents after 1990, because these people were still on a blacklist of the um, SRI, the successor to the Securitate, and uh, I felt it was important that uh, we, as intellectuals in the West and indeed Western government, should be aware of the. Uh, pernicious influence that lingered for a while in Romania after 1990. Um, and of course, 
yeah, regimes don't change overnight and people don't change overnight. And in the book, you write about how you served as an international observer at elections in Romania and Moldova uh, between 1990 and 1996. Um, just thinking about change over time, what did you notice about how freedom of speech and electoral processes in these countries changed during the 1990s? Um, I think there was a massive change. Um, and this was due uh, to a large degree um, to the influence of Western agencies, Western governments. In fact, if we look at change in Romania since the revolution, um, it's all or most of it is driven by the West, by the need to satisfy the uh, satisfy the conditions of entry to NATO, to the European Union, without that carrot, one might say, without that stimulus of incorporation and and integration subsequently into the Euro-Atlantic structures, I think change in Romania would have been very, very slow. Uh, let's just take the example of uh, Romania's difficulty in adhering to the justice uh, clause of the acquis communitaire. Um, it still doesn't satisfy the criteria in terms of justice um, that it signed up to in January 2007, um, it still is in breach of those conditions, which is why we have in place still the cooperation and verification mechanism of the European Union. And without the continued existence of uh, Western institutions, without the very courageous work of people in the um, <coughs> corruption uh in the corruption directorate, in the, the work of the prosecutors general, especially the work of Laura Covesi, um, much of the gains of, that have been achieved in terms of respect for human rights, in respect of transparency uh, and equity in the judicial system would not have been achieved. Um, I think uh, we still need to uh, make sure that Romania... Uh, follows its undertakings uh, that it gave regarding admission to the European Union in 2007 uh, and to continue to support uh, those figures of light in Romania who are trying to eradicate what I would call the remnants, the vestiges of a communist mentality there. Mm, that's yeah, that's um, very true. Just sticking with the 1990s again, one of the things that made me most jealous when reading this is your books on the Securitate were largely researched and written um, before the archives were open to the public, thanks to the fairly serendipitous intervention of Virgil Magoriano in 1993, who was the director of Sarai at the time. Why do you think it was that Sarai decided to open their archives to historians in 93? And when they did, um, what made them, like, why would they wanted to give one or two people access first before they opened them properly? Um, well, in my case, it was uh, purely, I would say, uh, accidental because um, I'd been asked, I was a member of the British government's know-how fund, which was set up to help Eastern Europe, set up by Margaret Thatcher, in fact, in, 19, in 1989. Poland was well, the first country admitted to it. Romania in the spring of 1990, and when the you Know How Fund, which was uh, designed to help uh, Romania uh, in terms of its bureaucracy, is um, streamlining its bureaucracy, um, introducing uh, legislation which would enable uh, the freedom that so many Romanians aspired to uh, when they overthrew the Communist Party and Ceausescu. Um, these measures, this policy was one that included helping lawgivers in Romania. And I was uh, asked by our foreign ministry to be a member of the Know How Fund, but with special relevance to Romania. Um, <clears throat> now, Virgil Mergorianu asked uh, in 1993, he addressed our request to the British Embassy in Bucharest for assistance from Britain in terms of dealing with young offenders. Uh, and uh, he asked for a corpus of legislation in that regard, uh, which uh, the British could send or should send. 
to Romania. And uh, then uh, one of the ministers of state at the foreign ministry asked me as a member of his committee, but not a diplomat, he stressed this, Um, he asked me if I would take uh, these eight volumes of laws to Mugurianu, and he explained to me that um, the British knew of Mr. Mugurianu's background, and he didn't want to entrust this role to a British diplomat, but asked <laughs> asked me if I'd be willing to uh, pick up the legislation which was sent through the diplomatic pouch from Bucharest and take it to Mugurianu. And uh, of course, I jumped at the chance because I knew who Mugurianu was, and. Um, I did this in the summer of uh, 93. So I took these, I accompanied these documents, I picked them up from our embassy in Bucharest, took them to to uh, Mr. Mugurianu, and he thanked me very much for bringing them. And uh, at the, the end of our conversation, he asked me, well, you've done me a service, what service can I do you? And just on the spur of the moment, I said to him, well, Mr. Mugurianu, I've down the years been interested in the Securitate, and he smiled. And I said, could I, I asked, could I see some Securitate documents? And he took up, uh, took a sheet of paper, gave me a pen, and he said, pick four themes that you would like to study and give me a call on my mobile. (laughs) Remember, this is 1993, not everyone had a mobile. Uh, and uh, we'll see what we can do. And so I asked, uh, I chose um, the my four topics, which were one, the organization personnel of the Securitate in August 1948. The second one was the trial of Lucrezio Petrushkanu. The, the third one, the third one was a, a trimester report from any of the regional directorates in the Securitate from the year 1950. I wanted to see how they reported on the um, state of affairs in Romanian staria de spirit was the term that was used. And the fourth and final topic was the resistenza and munt, so resistance to communism in the mountains, which dealt with this little known, these little known pockets of resistance to communism uh, that began to be active in the late 1940s. And two months later, um, I rang up Mr. Mugurianu. I went to Bucharest. I rang him up and he sent a car for me and took me, um, or I went to his headquarters and he said, all of these topics have been approved. You must uh, um, meet um, a colleague of mine. And he picked up his phone and called a colleague, a colonel. And he said, the colonel will um, bring documents uh, on these four topics to the state archives in Tishmijiu, um, and you should be there tomorrow at six o'clock in the morning. Um, so I said, okay, fine. And I went at six o'clock in the morning. It was, I think, in the late summer. Um, and I waited and a car drew up and the chauffeur driver got out together with the colonel. They opened the the trunk of the car or the boot of the car and uh, I helped them carry in these boxes of documents. And there was an archivist waiting at the door. She'd open the uh, the door to the archives. And remember, the archives are under control of the Ministry of the Interior anyway. And the colonel uh, said to him, I remember, um, Dr. Delatant has permission from the director to see these archives. You will show them to no one else. When he's finished with each volume, you will lock it away in one of the cupboards which were there in the reading room that I was shown to. Um, He will sign nothing. Now, I realise the significance of that because when I opened the first volume, there was what they call a foie de consultare. So uh, uh, there was a grid and everyone who uh, consulted the volume had to sign. And the only person who'd signed any of the volumes that I saw was um, <clears throat> was Alexandru Dragic, the former minister, minister of the Interior, um, probably the second most powerful man in the Romanian state or the third most powerful man uh, after 1952 in the Romanian state. He was the only person who had signed 
these documents. Uh, and so obviously I was very impressed. My Romanian friends later um, were very suspicious of me because they thought I must have been in some sort of a relationship, <laughs> ne negative relationship with the SRI to get access. But I explained to them how I come to get access. And when I'd finished, um, I asked Mr. Mugurianu if I could, if uh, the documents or some selected pages from the volume could be microfilmed. And uh, he said, yes, uh, talk to the colonel about this. And the colonel said it would cost me $1 for each page. Well, I was self-funded. I had no grant for doing this. So I thought, well, I can afford $600. So I chose 600 pages. And uh, again, a few months passed. I went back. Um, I rang up Mr. Magurianu. And uh, he invited me again to his headquarters and he gave me the microfilm and I asked him, how much do I owe you? And he said, you owe me nothing. It's a gift from me. And so I said, but Mr. Mugurianu, uh, uh, I'm intrigued to know why did you allow me to see these documents? And he just said, because I trust you. That's all he said. Uh, yeah. Um, and... Uh, I gathered from that because I, I, I met him on subsequent occasions. We had beers together. Uh, and he said to me, um, he just didn't trust Romanian journalists. He said so many of them had been informers and continued to be operational. Remember this word operational. Uh, and he said to me, you're still operational. Um, so when we talk about access to the Securitate files, we are talking about the Securitate. We're not talking about access to the SRI files. And I think um, what he told me, what he said to me, was in a, in a way rather disturbing, although it, it uh, consolidated, it confirmed what I felt about the ease with which the Securitate in the communist period was able to monitor people's activities. Um, a, a large segment of the population did the work of the Securitate for it, for itself. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Hmm. So really it was your ZE file that made you trustworthy uh, or what someone <laughs> had written in there. Uh, possibly, that's possibly. I think it's um, the fact that, like Mr. Mugariani said, they, he trusted me. So he felt that I was a balanced observer uh, and someone who was critical. He knew I was critical, of course, as a communist regime and we joked about that but um uh but he regarded me as a constructive critic not a neg negative critic and uh and not only he but several other senior figures in the communist uh, regime whom i uh, was uh, able to interview including mr president iliescu and petre roman and brucan and a whole list of them general stankalescu um, I mentioned them in the memoir, but several of them said to me, it was very, of course, gratifying for me to hear them say that uh, similar things, that they regarded me as very objective uh, and as a true friend of Romania. Uh, and they stressed Romania, not necessarily of neo-communism, but a true friend of Romania. In the book, you talk about 
um, the trauma of reading one's own Securitate file because you find out about people you thought were friends who informed on you and you see how ordinary things that you did were misinterpreted. Um, so eventually you did get a chance to see your own Securitate file. What was the most exciting thing or surprising thing you found in there? The most surprising thing was the fact that um, under the cultural agreement between Britain and Romania, um, the two countries exchanged language lectors. So the British, depending on the period we're talking about, sent up to three English language teachers to uh, Romanian universities. And in return, the Romanians sent one Romanian lector, so a native speaker, a teacher from a Romanian university who could could help with the teaching of Romanian. And Romanian was taught principally at the School of Slavonic and East European Studies where I was. But one day a week, the lector went up to Cambridge to teach uh, a class, uh, a couple of classes on Romania, on the Romanian language there. And uh, what in a way surprised me rather pleasantly in my file was the fact that all of these lectors who were required under the terms of their appointment by the Romanian side, because they had to be vetted by the Securitate, they were obliged to write reports uh, about the institutions that they were assigned to by uh, the British or the French or the Americans or the Germans, as the case may be. But in my case, nearly all of them wrote in a very dispassionate and positive way about the cooperation um, that I had with them uh, regarding the teaching of Romanian language and literature. Uh, and I, I felt this was uh, um, said a great deal about the character of these people, uh, as well, given the fact that they were living under, working under these uh, ideological constraints. That's, that's very interesting. Um, just moving on to your book about... Hitler's Forgotten Ally, um, which really challenged the way that most people think about the Antonescu regime. You started working on the Holocaust in Romania during your fellowship at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington in the year 2000. And back in 2000, very little had been written on the on the Holocaust in Romania, um, which was before the Elie Wiesel Commission's report came out and the same year that Radu Ioannid's book on the Holocaust in Romania was published. Um, were you shocked? when you started looking into the details of this story? Uh, yes, um, I was. First of all, just a, a few words of introduction as to how I got to the Holocaust Museum. In fact, it was largely through the uh, good offices of Ernest Latham, a good friend of mine, a former US cultural attaché in Romania in the 1980s. Ernest uh, introduced me to Paul Shapiro, Dr. Paul Shapiro at that time, was who was that time director of the centre, for advanced Holocaust studies at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. And uh, I went along and had a chat with um, Paul, and he knew of my interest in uh, Romanian history anyway, and, of course, he'd, he'd read a couple of my books published in the 90s. Uh, and he said, look, we can find money for you to look at uh, this specific topic of the Holocaust in Romania. Uh, we're particularly interested because we have received, um, uh, or we have bought, I ought to stress this, we have bought from the SRI a uh, large corpus of documentation about the Holocaust in uh, <clears throat> Romania. And uh, we haven't got uh, sufficient people to really examine these documents and to create, first of all, a finding aid, that is a small catalogue of these documents. So when I got there in 2000, uh, one of my tasks, and uh, this was agreed with Dr. Shapiro, uh, was to create a finding aid, which meant that I had to look through thousands of pages of documents. Um, and I did so with the help of Radu Yuanid, uh, with whom I became a great friend, uh, because he was the director of international acquisitions and had uh, great knowledge, detailed knowledge of how the Romanians had acquired, uh, sorry, how the uh, Holocaust Museum had acquired these documents. So the advantage for me of looking through these documents uh, was to realise the extent of 
the holdings of the museum. And in 2001, the Romanian, uh, the Holocaust Museum had acquired 600,000 pages from the Romanian state uh, or from Romanian authorities, largely via the SRI, uh, of documents about the Holocaust in Romania. And many of these documents, I understood, uh, had not been seen by Romanian scholars. So uh, I began work with uh, Radu. In fact, Radu left it largely to me to go through the, if you like, the details of the some of the collections. There was no way I could read 600,000 pages. At the same time, there was another Romanian scholar, Viorel Akim, who was who'd published a great deal about the Roma or gypsies in Romania. And so we agreed to split the task of looking at the uh, treatment of Roma and Jews in Romania as evidenced by the this great quantity of documents that the Holocaust Museum had recently acquired. And I spent a good deal of time reading these documents. Um, the extent of the uh, repression and maltreatment, the deportation was complete revelation to me. And I stress here, I'm not talking about international non-Romanian documents. These are documents, for example, on the deportations and the shootings of Jews uh, drawn up by either the Romanian gendarmerie um, or by the Romanian army and then passed on to the Romanian Ministry of Internal Affairs. In fact, uh, one of the figures who supervised the collection of such documentation from uh, Bessarabia, Bukovina, and Transnistria, these were the three major areas to which Jews and Roma were deported. Um, the person who was responsible, in a way, in a sense, for the guardianship of these documents was Mihai Antonescu, um, so the vice president of the Council of Ministers in Romania. And these documents gave the names of people who'd been deported uh, to Transnistria in particular. And when we're talking about deportation to Transnistria, it's not a question just of the several hundred thousand Romanian Jews who were deported there, but also the Ukrainian Jews in Transnistria who were deported internally from Odessa and other parts who were deported to the eastern extremities Bogdanovka, uh, Domenevka, uh, these were the notorious camps where tens of thousands of Jews died. Uh, the names of some of these Jews who died are there in the record, certainly the names of those who were sent to the various ghettos, uh, which I was particularly interested in, they were included. And one detail, again, amongst the many which struck me, was that the Romanian Jews' names um, and their addresses in various centres in Romania from which they'd been deported uh, were recorded. But the Ukrainian Jews who lived alongside them in some of the ghettos, their names, they were anonymous. They weren't recorded. And that's because the Romanian gendarmes didn't know Ukrainian. And of course, the Ukrainian Jews didn't know Romanian, or most of them didn't know Romanian. So they became anonymous. Those were They were the anonymous Jewish victims of deportation, as opposed to the uh, nominalized uh, or named victims um, of the Holocaust in Transnistria. Um, and, yeah, and your, your research... Um in that book and in others, has, has really shown the details and the horrors of what was going on there. Um, just to, to finish the In Search of Romania book, the book finishes with some fairly depressing reflections on the state of corruption in Romanian politics um, over the past decade. So taking your historian's hat off for a moment and thinking about the future rather than the past, um, do you imagine that this state of affairs will continue? Do you see some hope for the Romanian political landscape in the future? 
Um, I see some hope uh, in the sense that I come into contact uh, with many younger Romanians, and of course, still occasionally I do some teaching in Romania. So I'm aware there's a great deal of talent uh, that lies really uh, unexploited in Romania. And I think uh, one of the um, tragedies of Romania today is that the corruption is driving many of these talented Romanians abroad. Um, That's where you've got a political class that puts its own personal interest above the interests of the state. Uh, So you're going to discourage and disillusion a younger generation. And that's why I think uh, Western, uh, first of all, the members of NATO and the European Union need to keep pressing away at this problem of corruption, of um, combating uh, this mentality that exists, that um, I can milk the Romanian state. You know, unfortunately, there are still many politicians in Romania who regard uh, acts of an ignominious nature as creditable. Um, they see this as being schmecker, as something to be proud of. Uh, and just to illustrate um, that problem, I remember talking to a former mayor of Yash just uh, three or four years ago. We, I was with a group of um, uh, my friends in Yash. I have many there, and they invited me along to have lunch with the former mayor of Yash. And he told me the story. He had, he was the manager of a couple of restaurants in Yash, and uh, he was constantly being defrauded by his employees, and he asked one of them, why are you stealing from me all the time? And the employee's reply was, if I don't steal, I don't feel that I'm a man. I I thought, you know, this coming from a former mayor. So in Romanian, uh, the reply was, numa simt om, daca nu fur. So that's not about masculinity either. That's about humanity. It's about humanity, yes, exactly, yeah. And uh, as I say, that's why I uh, continue to be closely involved with uh, what's happening in Romania to follow events there and indeed um, have the opportunity to uh, give my opinion when asked um, to figures in the European Union and indeed in, in the United States. So... I still feel I'm doing something worth <laughs> worthwhile in my retirement, although it's really only semi-retirement. Yes, um, because it sounds like you're very busy with the new book coming out um, in August and the new fellowship in Washington next year. Um, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today uh, and for your very thoughtful and interesting replies. So I can highly recommend anyone who is in search of Romania, um, picking up this book and having a read. And thanks again, Dennis. Thank you for the opportunity to join in the conversation. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.